Good morning. Good morning. Am I, is my mic on? Is it right? Is it good? Good. Okay. <clears throat> okay. If you would open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 1, then we'll just have them open. And Jeremiah is sort of in the middle of the Bible. If you haven't ever read Jeremiah, um, it is an amazing book. I do hear a little bit of an echo. Is it because of where I'm standing? Or is it? Well, I'm Patricia, and I um, feel like I'm in your lap. Hi. <laughs> um, three years ago, when uh, Dan and I were here speaking to this group, um, we were about eight months out from a fire in Colorado Springs that had destroyed our home along with 500 other homes. And we were on quite a journey of, um, every, I mean, everything in our world was ashes, literally. Everything that spoke of our existence on this earth had been destroyed by that fire. And we came here and we spent three days uh, with this group and um, it was a fabulous time. And meal after meal we sat with people just like I did this morning and heard your faith stories. And what a, what a beautiful time it was. I'm old enough to be every one of your mothers. Uh, everyone except Neil. I'm not old enough to be <laughs> Sorry, Neil. <laughs> but I just came away loving every single, one of, every single person who was there. Just, it was such a precious, beautiful time, and it ministered so deeply to our souls. And uh, one of the things that I feel like I'm continuing to learn today uh, on this journey is that the cross is enough. And at every season of life, and when catastrophic life events happen, trials, suffering, and I know that some of you have experienced those kinds of things, even in your young lives, that um, we ask the questions, God, do you really love me right here? And the cross is enough, the greatest demonstration of that love. And God, can you really forgive me at this point? Because sometimes the trials of life have a way of shining a light down the corridors of the past onto shame, guilt, regret, pain that you haven't, you haven't looked at in a long time. And so at that point, you ask, God, do you really forgive me? Is your forgiveness really big enough for me? And his answer is, the cross is enough. The cross is the answer. So uh, this morning, I'm so excited to be sharing with you. Uh, I want to talk with you about... Uh, what was going on uh, in the days of Daniel and kind of put that in a context of what was happening to the people of Israel and why. So um, let me pray real quick and just, Lord, I just thank you so much for your word and just the beauty, the depth, the glory um, of your word. And so I pray that this morning uh, your word would speak would speak so deeply to all of our hearts and just that, that the things I'm sharing would bless the hearts of every person here in, the way, in, in ways I can't even imagine, but, but I know how it's blessed my heart, and I'm so thankful. In Christ's name, amen. So Psalm 24 tells us that the earth is the Lord's 
and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. This is, this theme, this thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation is a foundation of faith, that there is one God who created this earth, and this earth belongs to him, and that everyone on this earth from since, since time began and until time ends, belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and every person who dwells in it. And the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong, to give strong support in behalf of those whose hearts are blameless toward him. Second Chronicles 16, 9 that God is a personal God, that there is one creator. These two foundational principles of faith, there is one creator who sees and he loves and he forgives. Now, the blameless heart, does anybody feel a little intimidated by those words? He's searching for the blameless heart. Well, I have some good news for you, that the blameless heart is not the perfect heart because he wouldn't find anybody. It's not the sinless heart. God's not looking for the perfect or the sinless, but God is looking for the heart that is open, the heart that is honest, the heart that is humble before him, that is willing to be seen, to be loved, to be forgiven, to receive the love that God wants to give. This is good news, and it's from Genesis to Revelation. It's in every book. I want to say it's on every page that this is the good news, that God so dearly loves the world. So in the days of Daniel, the world was in convulsions. It's a little bit like today, I think. And the eyes of the Lord saw three young men whose hearts were open, whose hearts were blameless, to be his voice, to be his testimony. Daniel was one of those young men. Daniel was in the melting pot of humanity in the center of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar was bringing the best and the brightest from all over the world where he conquered and bringing them to Babylon. It was an incredible place of intelligence and talent and uh, people from all over, all over the world. And Daniel's message, if I summed it up, I would say that there is one God and he sets up kings and he deposes them and nothing is hidden from God's sight, from his power and from his plan. Um, another voice of God was Ezekiel. Now, when Daniel was taken off with those hundred boys that, that Dan talked about last night, uh, it was in the context, a bigger group of 10,000 people that were taken from Jerusalem at that time. And these were the people who were the most skilled, the most educated. These were the elite of Jerusalem, and about 10,000 of them were carted off. These were the people that could contribute to the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And so when he conquered a city, he would take people like this, bring them into his land. Now, Ezekiel was a voice to the others outside, the exiles that were taken and, and settled outside of Babylon. So these people were in communities, and Ezekiel was one of those. And Ezekiel's message to the exiles, they needed to know 
what God was going to do in Jerusalem. And they needed to know why. Because this first round of judgment was very small in comparison to what was coming. And I love the message of Ezekiel. I don't know if you've ever trudged your way through the book of Ezekiel, but it's fabulous. Your life will be changed. And in Ezekiel, he says this message from God, all souls are mine, God says, and I have no pleasure in the death of any man. And the exiles needed to know that God still loved them, that there was a promise that their children and their grandchildren would be the ones who would go back to Jerusalem after the destruction, 70 years after, and they would help rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall, and that God would fill their hearts with his love and his grace in Jerusalem again. And so that was the beautiful promise that Ezekiel gave to the exiles that were settled in the land of Babylon. And Jeremiah is the voice left in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah was rejected. He was ridiculed. For 23 years, he warned and he wept and he waited. And his eyes would be the eyes that would see the horror of the reality of judgment. So the eyes of the Lord searching to and fro throughout the earth since time began, searching for that heart that is blameless, the heart that is open and willing to receive God's love, God's forgiveness. It's a life that is allowing that transforming power of God into their lives to be forgiven. It's a life that is convicted. It's a life that is chosen. It is always forgiven and it oftentimes looks forsaken on this earth. Now, we talk about the chosen people, the people of Israel. We go, well, why were they chosen? Do you ever feel that way? Like, maybe not, but... So I just want to give you this brief capsule of history of why these people were chosen. It started back in Genesis. It starts with Abraham, and you probably already know all this, but we'll just run through it. Abraham was chosen by God. Now, Abraham was not a very special person. He wasn't chosen because he had something God needed. Abraham was one man. He had one wife who had no children. She was barren. He had an aging father, and he had a nephew. And that's, that's all Abraham had. But he was found by God, and he was chosen to receive this promise. God said, I will make you a great nation I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through you, all the families of the earth will receive the good news of God's love and who God is. Now, Paul explains more to us about Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And this is what Paul says. The promises came through faith, and they rested on grace. Abraham was a man forgiven who placed his hope in God alone, and his faith grew strong as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what God had promised. A simple man, a simple life 
a life of worship, a life of faith. So the eyes of God had found his man through whom to channel his blessing to all the families of the earth. Abraham died, and Abraham had one son who worshipped Yahweh, Isaac. Isaac had one wife, two sons, but he only had one son that loved Yahweh, that, that embraced the promise, that worshipped God, and his name was Jacob. Jacob was a man who worshipped God, and he was a man who wrestled with God. Jacob, in, one, in his wrestling match with an angel of God, uh, in a, a night of darkness and fear like he had never experienced in his whole life, holding on to God, saying, do not leave me without a blessing, Jacob was renamed Israel. And that's where we get the name Israel. Israel had 12 sons. And as a result of famine in the world, he was driven to Egypt. And when he got there, it says it was a, he was a company of 70 people. So in Egypt, about five generations later, the people of Israel, who started with these 70 people, they're settled just north of the capital in the land of Goshen. And about five generations later, they are about one million people. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, sees that there is something different about these people. He doesn't know what it is, but he recognizes that there's some sort of blessing on these people. And so slowly, he just enslaves them. He just puts them into service in his kingdom. He oppresses them, puts them into bondage. They cry out to God. You've probably heard about the exodus, right, and the plagues and all of that. So this is God's plan for beauty and for glory. So God, you've, you've seen Charlton Heston, right? I don't know if y'all have ever seen that movie, Part the Red Sea, and we go through all that. This, this amazing deliverance, never before on earth has God delivered a whole people out of bondage like this. But let me tell you, it is the stormiest journey. It's, a, it's incredible. These people are so broken. They're such a mess. So it's just such a crazy story. But in Exodus 19, God says this. They've, they've crossed the Red Sea, and they're, they're out in the middle of the wilderness. And God says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. If you will obey and keep my promises, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth, for the earth is mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation set apart for the worship of God. The final words of Moses. Moses says to them, you are a chosen people. Now, he had a lot of, let me just clarify, Deuteronomy is like all the final words of Moses. So <laughs> he says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, a treasured possession, chosen not because you were great, but simply because you were loved. The Lord loves you. The Lord promised your fathers back to Abraham that he would bless you that he would bless their descendants 
And you happen to be their descendants. And he promised that through you, he would bless the whole world. This is the desire of God's heart, that there would be a people who know and love him, that there would be a nation of justice and righteousness resting in forgiveness and joy, to be a light in the world for glory and for beauty, to be a channel of blessing. This is the plan of God. This is the will of God. This is the good news, isn't it? That God wants to bless the families of the world. So fast forward, the eyes of the Lord found a young shepherd named David, a Jewish man of Israel, greatly gifted, deeply flawed. There is no one in the scriptures that I know of who is able to embrace the grace and the forgiveness of God like the shepherd David. What an incredible story. In the darkest places of fear in his life, he had the ability, the courage, to humble himself before God and receive forgiveness and put his life in God's hands. Well, David had a son named Solomon. And Solomon, after his father's death, was able to really unite the kingdom. He was able to bring all these promises together. It was an incredible time. And Solomon built the temple. He imported wood from all over the world, from the cedars of Lebanon, the gold and the silver. And if you read in Leviticus about the design of the temple, being an interior designer, like I love, I love that. God loves beauty. And so Solomon built this amazing temple and he built all these houses and he turned Jerusalem into one of the most beautiful cities on earth. If you want to read about Jerusalem, read, read Ecclesiastes and you'll see all the beautiful things that Solomon created. Well, it was a fabulous time. It was a time of beauty and glory. And Solomon loved God and he wanted the wisdom of God and he wanted to follow God and he humbled himself before God and he prayed for God's forgiveness. And it's just an incredible story. And Solomon, his, his reputation went out through all the earth and the kings and the queens of all, from all over the, the earth came to see if this was true. They heard the rumors as traders would come through Jerusalem and through Israel, and they came to see if it was true. One of those was the Queen of Sheba, and she traveled over 1,200 miles. She said, I've heard these rumors, but I don't even believe it, so I've got to come and see it for myself. And she looked at the beauty Solomon had created, and she, looked, she sat in his court, and she listened as he spoke and his wisdom. And then she looked at his officials, and she looked at his servants, and she looked at the people of the land, and she said, I didn't even hear the half of it. And this was her conclusion. She said, blessed be the Lord your God. She knew that this was divine, what she was seeing. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. And he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. And this glory is born out of the love of God 
for one man way back here to be a channel of blessing to all the families of the earth. And that's exactly what happened. In those days, that's the closest that we ever came to the plan that God desired for mankind on this earth since the garden. This is, this is the good news, isn't it? It's beautiful news, but there's good news, bad news. Because although Solomon started out strong, Solomon's heart was led astray. Solomon had a few problems. He had 700 wives and 300 uh, mistresses. He violated the law of God. He clung to these in love. He brought in foreign women from all over the world. And with them came their gods. And they set up their altars and their rituals and their priests. And so every known god on earth kind of infiltrated into the land of Israel. Idolatry is kind of a weird thing, isn't it? It's a word that we don't quite resonate to, but one example is that you take a tree and you cut off part of it, you cut it into firewood and you build a fire and you warm your hands and you cook your food. And then you take another part of that tree and you build your house. And then you take a third part of that tree and you carve some kind of an image in it. And maybe it's in the likeness of a human being or an animal. And so you carve it and you set it there and then you bow down and say, the work of my hands. And you say, "This this is what I will worship. This is my safety. This is my hope. This will bless me. And so you carry it around. And it's deaf and it's blind and it's powerless. And yet you worship it. And this is what happened in Israel. The scripture says that we become like what we worship. So Solomon fell into this kind of idolatry. His son did not love or worship Yahweh. And at the end of Solomon's life, he was very cruel and he was very proud. And his son was the same way. So when his son took over the throne, um, the kingdom split. So we had 12 tribes. And now we have 10 that become Israel, that are Israel. They're called the Northern, the Northern Kingdom. And then we have Judah, which is two tribes. It's kind of, and if, you, if you've recently looked at a map and you've seen how small Israel, Israel's like this tiny sliver of land. Can you imagine the world is in such an uproar over such a tiny sliver of land? But it's this tiny sliver of land, and in the middle of it is a sliver within a sliver, and that's Judah. That's the, ten tri- the two tribes right in the middle. Well, we have, now we have two lines of kings from Solomon. We've got the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. The kingdom split. And out of all these kings, there is no king who is ever able to bring the nation back together. There is no king that is ever able to bring back those days of of beauty and glory. The vision is lost. The blessing is is lost. In 725 B.C., Israel is conquered by the Assyrians. So that's the ten tribes. And so they're carried off into exile. Isaiah, Hosea, Micah warned the people about the coming judgment. In those days, the evil in the society had become greater than the evil in the nations all around them. 
It says that innocent blood just flowed in the streets, that it was just a murderous, evil time, that corruption permeated every level of society, from the kings to the priests to the marketplace to your neighborhood and in the home, that corruption, corruption permeated every level of society. So Israel goes off into captivity, and you've still got Judah, though. Somehow, you've got the Assyrians, you've got the Egyptians, Nebuchadnezzar is rising to power. I mean, you've got this amazing time of turmoil, and little Judah just sort of exists, Jerusalem and right around Jerusalem. A hundred years later, God gives Judah a gift, and it's in the form of a king. And his name is Josiah. Dan talked about Josiah last night. He was the grandson of the most evil king that had ever been known, Manasseh. But Josiah loved God. Josiah had a blameless heart. And he signed executive orders. We know about executive orders now, don't we? (laughs) So first... He became king when he was eight years old because his father was so evil that he was assassinated. So then the leadership had to raise Josiah until he was about 20. Meanwhile, Jeremiah was born and then Daniel was born. So you see these these lives and Ezekiel. So Josiah, when he was about 20 years old, he started to exert his power and he really loved the Lord and he saw the evil in his society. And so he purged idolatry. He sent in a team of people to clean the temple out because the temple now that Solomon had built was filled with every idol on earth and the worship of everything. So he cleansed the temple and he cleansed the land and he said, I want to bring us back to a nation of justice, to a nation of laws, to a nation of respect where people are treated with respect to a nation without oppression, that we, would, um, that we would have that kind of righteousness in the process of cleansing the temple. Dan mentioned last night that the book of the law was found. It had been just buried. Can you imagine the book of Moses? Like if you found it, like how would you feel? It would be so amazing. So they found the book of the law and they brought it to Josiah and they started reading from these scrolls the words of God. And Josiah said, I want every man, woman, and child in my kingdom to hear these words. And when Jeremiah heard those words, do you know what he said? Thy words were found, and I ate them. And they became a delight to my soul. It's like Jeremiah, when he heard the words of God, he just, absor- he just wanted them to become a part of who he was. He had such a love for them. So the law is read. The executive orders are signed. But the problem is that Josiah could not change the hearts. He could not change the hearts of the people. A king cannot legislate a cleansing of the hearts. And after Josiah died... Um, the land went right back. His son did not worship God, and the, the, the society went right back. Well, Jeremiah's ministry began in the 13th year of Josiah. He was about 
who was about 25 years old, and Jeremiah was 20 years old. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it says that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I approved of you as my chosen agent. And I consecrated you, and I have appointed you to be my prophet, to be my voice to the nations. Now, you're all around 20 years old somewhere, so what would you say if you heard God saying that to you? Well, what Jeremiah said was, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm, too, I'm in college. Like, I'm on, right? I've got, I've got all these plans, and, and, you know, I've also got some student loans I've got to pay back, and my dad really wants me to be a doctor. I mean, you can only imagine. And God said, no, I've got a different plan. I've got a different purpose, and I will send you, and you shall go, and you shall speak, don't be afraid. And I'm kind of summarizing God's message. You can read it in Jeremiah 1 later. But don't be afraid. I am with you and I am watching over my word to perform it. And you will root out and you will tear down. You will destroy and overthrow. You will build and plant. You will be resisted and you will be rejected. I will give you divine strength. Do not be afraid. So we have this young man called by God at a very unexpected time in his life. The message is simple. Return to God with all your heart, with a sincere heart. Return to justice and goodness, forgiveness, respect, beauty, and glory. The message is simple, but the message is serious because God has had enough of the evil in this land. And judgment is coming. The consequences are huge. Return or face the devastating judgment. Now, Jeremiah's message was so unpopular. You can only imagine, can't you? I mean, talk about a dark message, right? So he was rejected. He was ridiculed. He was betrayed by friends and family. He was falsely accused. He was beaten. He was thrown into prison. There were plots to murder him when they couldn't get him silenced. And at the end of his life, he was even kidnapped by some of his own people. After Josiah's death, the country slipped right back into the old patterns. Jeremiah ministered for 23 years. He spoke this message, and then he would actually watch the fall of Jerusalem. Now, Jeremiah was a young man. The eyes of the Lord had found him. But you know, even this is not a new message, is it? In Ephesians chapter 1, it says this about all of us, about every one of us. It says that long before... God had laid down earth's foundations. He had you in mind. You can put your name right in there. That he had settled on you 
as the focus of his love. What good news to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift giving by the hand of his beloved son through the sacrifice of the Messiah. His blood poured out on the cross and we are a free people. We are forgiven and we are abundantly free. In Christ we find out who we are and what we are living for. This is the message for you and me. This is the message. This is good news that there is a God, that there is a creator who sees, he's personal. He sees and he loves and he forgives. And he has a plan for our lives. We are chosen and we have been found, not because we are perfect, not because we are sinless, but because we have that open, honest heart before God that we want to receive the love and the forgiveness of God. We are chosen to walk on a journey of faith, and he is the one writing that faith story. I love the definition of faith in the Amplified Bible in the New Testament that faith is the leaning in of my entire human personality, all of me, my good, my bad, my weak, my strong, my fears, my pain, uh, the things I can grasp and the things I cannot, that it is the leaning in of my entire human personality in absolute trust in God's power and God's wisdom and God's goodness. Absolute trust that God has the power to help me, to see me and to love me and deliver me, that God has the wisdom. He knows how to do it. He knows exactly what I need, and it's all out of his goodness. It's all out of his love. Isn't that just a beautiful definition that I am leaning? There are days when I walk around thinking, I am leaning now, I am leaning now, over and over and over, as different thoughts, different fears, different things come into my mind. Lord, I am leaning in right now. So this is the message of good news. Um, just a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit next to this man on an airplane. And I don't usually talk to people on airplanes too much because they're tiny little commuter jets, you know, it's so uncomfortable. And everybody on the plane can hear your conversation, right? But this man really wanted to talk. And so Dave and I got to talking. And of course, we talked football. Does anybody here like to talk? Like, okay, besides Neil. Um, <laughs> Neil is still talking about when UT beat, uh, never mind. So, uh, so Dave and I, we talked football. I mean, I love football. So if you want to sit and talk about the Super Bowl or something like that, we could do that. But anyway, so um, we talk sports. He's a big sports guy. And he um, is from a foreign country, uh, English speaking, obviously. And so, um, or maybe not. But anyway, so 
Dave and I had this great conversation. The whole plane is listening to us talk about why the uh, Atlanta Falcons lost the Super Bowl. So <laughs> it was great. So then Dave begins to ask me about my family. So I'm just talking about my kids. I have three kids. And, and uh, you know, well, tell me about them. Well, you know, each one is so, well, oh, he asked me, which one do you love the most? Is that the weirdest question? I have never had anybody ask me which child I love the most. Okay, so I said, um, well, I, you know, each one of my kids is so different. You know, I feel like they've each been so uniquely created by God. And so it's just how, I, you know, I talk. And so I just began to describe my kids. And so Dave says, well, um, you know, I, I kind of, pick up on that you're, you know, a person of faith. And, and I asked him a question or two about his family. He goes, well, I was raised in a, this really religious home with lots of rules and regulations. And he said, I just don't get it about how some people are going to heaven and some people are going to hell. He goes, I just, I just don't get it. And I said, well, I said, you know, um, I, don't, I don't really have an answer because I really believe that God is saving people all over the world in ways that I can't even imagine um, through, his, through miraculous things. And I said, but so I believe that's between each person and God, you know, whether they're going to heaven or he you know, whatever that is. I said, all I know is that there is a God in heaven who is the creator and the lover of the world. And that in God, there is love and forgiveness and there is hope that we have a God who sees and hears and loves us. And he said to me, where did you hear this good news? Who told you this good news? And so I just shared with him my story of how I came to know this good news, of how I found out about this good news. And I'm telling you from that point on, Dave could not stop smiling. It was as if this joy had just sort of fallen over him. He had never heard such good news. Isn't that exciting? Wow, I wasn't really going to share that, but I did. So <laughs> that was just so much fun. So Jeremiah, poor Jeremiah, he says, you know, we just need to do justice and righteousness back to this nation. We just need to stop oppressing people. We need to stop lying and stealing and stop violence. Stop murdering people, okay? And so stop serving other gods. So Jeremiah moaned, and these are the things that he moaned to God. Do you ever moan in your prayers? Like, I moan all the time. So I really identify with this. And Jeremiah goes, you know what? These people just proceed from evil to evil. Like, God, nothing is changing. And he said, brother deceives brother, and neighbor slanders neighbor. And because Jeremiah's down in the trenches, like he's, he's not up living in this palace somewhere. He's down walking the streets. And he said, they weary themselves with sin. And there's just oppression everywhere I look. People are in poverty. People are enslaved. People are trapped. And you know, just outside of Jerusalem... was the valley, there was a valley, and that's where they built the altar to the god of Molech. And what Molech required in order for you to be forgiven and 
for your land to be blessed, he required the slaughter of children. And so it was there on the altar of Molech to the beat of drums so that no one had to listen to the cries of the children or the parents. That's where the children were slaughtered to the god of, of Molech. So this is the kind of day uh, that Jeremiah is talking to. You know, it's happening in our country. Do you, ha, have you heard that? Have you encountered? There's satanic worship. There's all kinds of worship. Even in Colorado Springs, there are reports of child sacrifice going on. It's a horrific thing. So Jeremiah went to the poor. He went to the middle class, and he went to the rich. And he asked this question, is there anybody who gets it? Is there anybody who understands? He talked to the wisest, the most educated. He made sure they heard his message. He talked to the most powerful, the, 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 the soldiers, the military, the, the police, whoever. The, the people of power, the people who owned businesses and, and had financial power. And he talked to the rich. And no one would listen to his message. And you might know this verse, because Jeremiah cried out, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this. If there's anything you're proud of, that he understands and knows God. For God says, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and righteousness and justice on earth. And these are the things that I delight in. But the message was rejected. Now, I wanted to talk, and there's so many messages, so many uh, themes and warnings but I just wanted to talk about one, and that is this whole thing of idolatry. Because it is a, a weird word to us, and it is something that it's hard to, to connect with. But I, I know that in my world that I encounter people who are very superstitious. Do you encounter people who are, you know, like, have you heard about the evil eye? Does anybody know about it's a little charm on a bracelet? And, and then you've got these prayer bracelets that people wear that have been blessed by uh, Buddhist monks and, uh, and you put them on and you never take them off and, and it's a good thing. And a good friend of mine, really, really dear friend of mine, she said she's on her journey of faith and uh, she said, you know, Patricia, you really need an evil eye out by your front door because it's so great because it just wards off evil spirits and it keeps the house safe and it's, and it's a really good thing, and she really loves this thing. And she's, well, anyway, so I won't tell you that story. Someday I'll tell you the story of my dear, dear friend. I love her to death. But anyway, so I just took that opportunity to say, hey, you know, uh, I'm not really looking to something like that for my safety and security. I'm, I really don't have that superstition that that's where my hope or my safety would, would be in that kind of a thing. So... People in our world are searching for safety, right? They're searching for protection. They're searching for a secret to happiness, don't you think? Does that ring a bell? And they're searching for something that gives you a little bit of control over your world. Do you find that? Like, 
something that makes, that, that there's a pattern, a rhyme, or reason. Like I wore these socks, and we always win when I wear these socks, right? I mean, that's a pretty common thing. Um, and so they see, it seems kind of harmless. And yet deep at the heart of it, there is a desire for a safety. There is a desire for security. There's a desire that I have some power over the things that make me feel powerless, over the things that I need. So I ask you, I just want to ask you a few questions to think about. And all of us, uh, where, is, where is my hope? You know, is, what is it that I feel like will take care of me as I walk this journey of life? Is it my education? Is it finding the right person? Is it found in a relationship? Is it found in my family? Is it in my appearance? We talked last night about having the right, the right clothes, being cool, being in the right circles. You know, is that where I feel like that acceptance, that that's where, that's a safe place for me. Uh, in our appearance, the worship of beauty, the worship of the body. We worship uh, this, these romantic types of ideas about life, about relationships. And you know, that what I want to say is that none of these things are evil in and of themselves. But it's the worship of. It's when these things become compelling, become controlling. In some cases, they become very destructive. It's when I'm constantly thinking about I need for this to happen, or I need this. And if it doesn't, there's an element of fear. If I don't get this, there may be anger. Have you ever felt that, where it's like, I, I needed that, and there's anger over not getting that. Um, none of these things that I mentioned are meant to be a true source of security, of hope, or of value as a person. And so I ask the warning signals of this. You know, is there something in my life that triggers fear and anxiety? Often something that's become too important, too compelling, that I, it really guides me. Like I make this, I think about this before I make an important decision. I think about how, how this decision will affect this certain thing in my life. Um, it may trigger fear and anxiety. It's a place where there is no peace. And the word peace is defined by the Amplified as a freedom from fear, from agitating passions, and moral conflicts. So the things that trigger fear in my life, the things that, that cause me to stay up at night that churn inside of me, what are those agitating passions? And what are the moral conflicts, the things where when I'm faced with it, I kind of have to debate about which way to go and what, how to answer. Um, oftentimes, it's a place of secrets. It's something that's hidden in my life that I really wouldn't want other people to see or know about. Uh, it's, a, it's a place where there might be some secrets. Idolatry always brings fear. It brings bondage. It leads to perversion, and it leads to destruction. And the Lord knows these things in my heart. 
He knows these places of my heart, and yet he loves me still. Absolutely. The message of Jeremiah revealing sin and calling people back to a different sort of life, the people of his day said, this is such a dark message. But it was meant to be a message of hope and life because there is a God who is able to free us from the bondage. There is a God who does not require the sacrifice of our children in order to bless us. There is a God who does not require for us to suffer and be punished and inflict pain on ourselves or on others in order to pay for what we have done wrong. This is good news. And the Lord has the power to help me on this journey of freedom. He has the wisdom. He has the power. He has the love for this journey. I want to share with you just two stories of women that um, are in my life. Lisa, very, very dear friend of mine, as a young child, she uh, suffered sexual abuse outside the home. She suffered uh, emotional abuse within the home. Both sides of her parents in her history is alcoholism history. Um, she was the fourth of uh, four girls and kind of a trailer. And so she had uh, years where it was just her and her mother. And her mother had incredible anger and depression. And the emotional abuse that went on in the home was so severe. The message that you will never be good enough, you will never be smart enough, you will never be beautiful enough, you will never be rich enough. This is the message that Lisa heard over and over and over again. She had her first drink at age 14 in the home at a family party, lots of alcohol in the home. I think a cousin fixed her her first vodka and something, whatever it was, and that began this cycle. You know, drinking was nice. It was sociable, right? It's a, it's a kind of a friendly thing to do, and it just became a part of the fabric of her life. It became calming and it became a comfortable, a place of comfort and sort of a place of safety. It became a place where she could numb the pain. Lisa is a beautiful person. She is smart. Oh, she went to a great college. She had a great job after college. But when I met her, 30 plus, she's in her mid 40s, she is still battling the voice of her mother, that you will never be good enough. You will never be smart enough. You will never accomplish great things. 30 some odd years later, she's battling this and she's also battling alcohol. Now Lisa came to faith in her early 30s and she married a man of faith and they had three beautiful children but when the stress of life and the anxiety of life and the fears of life and the fear of failure and the financial stresses came, Lisa turned back to what she knew, the place of safety, the place of comfort. And I, when I met Lisa, she had bottles of vodka hidden all over the house. They were in her bathroom. They were in her bedroom. 
They were in several places in her kitchen. And she would slip down into this valley of drinking at times of stress. And it would spiral down into, at first it started out fine, but it would spiral down into depression and anger and bitterness. And why has God done this to me? And then she would pull back out and she would stop, she'd get a hold of it. She would realize the destructive power and she'd stop drinking. When I met Lisa in her mid-40s, her kids were all in school and we became friends and I became the first person in Lisa's life that she was willing to trust with this issue. She would be driving her kids in carpool and other people's kids with a drink in a plastic cup with a plastic lid and a straw, just as drunk as she could be. And Lisa began to share with me this struggle, this hold, this thing that had this strong hold on her life. Well, this went on. I, I, I immediately began to do all the weird things that you try to do when you don't understand, right? Mm -hmm. To help somebody. You have no clue. Uh, the only good thing, I did two good things in these years, and this went on for several years. One was that I loved her, and I walked down through those valleys with her and saw her pull back out. I saw the destructive power. I came to her aid and then would walk, trying to help her back out, and she would stop for a while and slip back down into the very same patterns. I saw the anger and the bitterness and the agitation in Lisa's life. The second good thing I did, besides loving her, walking with her, trying to help, nothing helped, was I got her connected with a counselor who really could help with some of the abuse that had happened in, the, in her past. Well, Lisa finally hit rock bottom, and together the counselor and I, one on each side, helped her out of that valley. And I won't keep talking about how, but God's power at that time were, clicked. Whatever it was that clicked. And today, Lisa, we are three years, and she is a totally different person. That this thing does not have this hold on her. The peace in her life, the freedom that God has given in her life, but I'm telling you, these three years have been an absolute, uh, absolutely, I don't want to call them a nightmare. The first year probably was. But what a journey. What a journey. So I just want to say, if there's anything in your life, or if you know someone who has something in their life that has that kind of a stronghold on them, boy, now is the time. Now is the time to find someone who is safe, to find someone that you can trust, to figure out between you and God, only God knows the path of freedom on that journey. But, wow, in 30 years, in 40 years, I can't explain to you how difficult that journey becomes to get freedom, but it is possible. God is great. I want to share with you a second example I want to share with you about our daughter, our daughter Annie. She's 23 years old. When Annie was a freshman in college, um, 
Annie was brutally attacked and raped. And it was in February of 2013. And we began the journey of healing from a horrific crime as a family and in Annie's life. She finished out her school year and she came home. And uh, we had some things to do. And then we were headed to Texas on June 11th. Uh, my oldest daughter, Abigail, who is Annie's very best friend, uh, was expecting her first child. And so we drove off on the morning of June 11th to Texas, got a call about 3.30 that afternoon. Patricia, did you know that there is a fire in the forest? No, actually. <laughs> uh, I'm crossing the Texas state line. Dan was out of town. He'd left that morning as well for a business trip. And that day, our house burned to the ground. Our house was in the heart of the fire. And the fire burned for three days. It, the winds blew it east. The winds blew it uh, south. And then it came back again. We're pretty sure it came through our property twice uh, on its way north uh, before it just burned itself out. Um, so on that day, uh, we lost our home. Um, that safe place, you know, on earth. Um, and Annie lost everything that spoke of who she had ever been, the life she had ever had ever lived. Um, and about ten, about a week later, uh, we almost lost Abigail in childbirth. Jeremiah says, "Crash follows hard upon crash." In Jeremiah chapter four. And wow, I really identify with that little verse. Crash follows hard upon crash, and the land is left desolate. And that is how my soul felt. We left Annie in Waco with, with Abigail. It took Abigail actually about six months to recover from what happened to her. Annie was there uh, for part of the summer. Uh, Dan and I went home to try to figure out, you know, now what? Uh, Annie came home midsummer, and there really was nothing to come home. There wasn't anything to come home to. There wasn't a home. We lived in a rental house, and for which we are very thankful, but um, there was no place to come home to. So as August came, Annie decided to go back to school. So she uh, played soccer in college and uh, went back to school to play soccer. We uh, were... Um, up there almost every other week to see soccer games and just to be with her. Uh, she was in counseling and under the care of a doctor. And uh, about three quarters of the way through the soccer season, I said, you know, Annie, I said, you just look so thin, sweetie. She said, oh, mom, it's just soccer. You know, I always lose weight during soccer. It's so much exercise. Okay, well, that makes sense. Well, what I didn't know is that her counselor had referred her to a psychiatrist who had put her on an antidepressant. And already Annie was in this cycle of, I hate myself. It's this terrible cycle, a victim of a crime. I hate my body. I hate myself. I feel shame. 
I feel guilt. And the cycle of anorexia had already started. And the antidepressants, uh, you know, they have a bazillion side effects. And, uh, and one of them can be to kill your appetite. And that's exactly, I mean, it just fed right, right into that. And so she was very sick over Christmas, and we were very worried about her. But still, she had the excuses because it's a hidden place. It's a hidden place where something has this strong hold on you. And so um, the self-condemnation, the guilt, the shame, and the need for control. You know, that's also a part of control, isn't it, in that area, that this is something, when life is out of control, I can control my body, and this is what will make my body right. So um, by Easter, Annie was at a crisis, and your bodily organs start shutting down, and you can't think anymore. And it's just a slow suicide, basically, is what it is. And she came home at Easter, and she told us. She said, but everything's going to be fine. I've told my counselor, talked to my doctor. Um, everything's going to be fine. Three weeks later, I got this phone call. It was one week before finals. And Annie says, she's hysterical. And she says, I can't go on. She's literally at death's door. Well, I knew that at that very moment when Annie made that phone call, it was a Thursday afternoon, that Dan was on his way home from a business trip and that he was stopping, he was connecting through in Chicago. And so I talked to her a little bit and I said, you hold on. I got off the phone. I called Dan. He had just landed. And I said, you get off the plane and rent a car and go get Annie. By Sunday afternoon, Annie was in a treatment center. And that began her journey of healing from something that had completely taken control in her life. And Annie began to seek the Lord again. She spent time, as she got stronger, as they force, they force feed you in these treatment centers. I mean, they watch every meal, every bite you eat. It's a crazy, it's the craziest experience. Uh, Dan and I could see her for three hours a week, so we would fly up every uh, Friday night or Saturday morning. We could see her for three hours on Saturday afternoon. And we're right in the middle of building the new house, of course. And so um, what I want to share with you is that in the middle, she was there for eight weeks. And in the middle of this time, I got this phone call. And she said, Mom, what I've realized is that I have been bowing down in worship at a toilet because of the anorexia and the, purge, the binging and the purging. She said, I have been bowing down in worship at a toilet, and I do not want to do that for the rest of my life. This is 
the hold that things can get on our lives, the things that grip us, the things that compel us, the things that control us. This is what God calls us to, freedom from these kinds of things. So I share these with you because if there are things hidden in your life, little, even small, even seeds of things, or in other people that you know and love, there is hope, there is freedom, there is a God, there is good news. There is a God in heaven who can heal even after a horrific crime, even after the, the, the loss of a child, almost losing a child, the loss of a home, this terrible experience of, of abuse, of self-abuse. There is a God, there is good news, there is freedom. There is hope and healing. Well, Jeremiah, as I said, Jeremiah was, was rejected. Jerusalem was destroyed in 588. Well, in 588 B.C., the, the final siege began. It lasted two and a half years. And the people of Jerusalem were starved. Disease was rampant. Cannibalism was resorted to. Um, the walls were breached July 18th, 586 B.C. Now, the way Nebuchadnezzar handled this was that when the walls were breached and the soldiers came into the city, first they went through and they slaughtered everyone who was still standing to, to try to defend the city. So the slaughter was throughout the city. Then they ransacked every home. They ransacked the temple. They stole every, they, they loaded up everything that was of value then they burned the city down to the ground. And then they left behind uh, a, t a, a crew of slaves who actually reduced the whole city to rubble. It was their job that anything that was still standing, a wall, anything, should be destroyed. It was reduced to rubble. Jeremiah was allowed to live. And he saw all of this. And in Lamentations, Jeremiah writes, I am the man who has seen affliction under God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again. My flesh wastes away and my bones are broken. These are the words of God's servant. God has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. I cannot escape. I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. I cower in ashes. My endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. If you want to read one of the saddest chapters in the Bible, read Lamentations chapter 3. It's so vulnerable. It's so honest. And I don't know if you've ever felt that kind of pain. But Jeremiah, I love his honesty and his vulnerability with God. Where are you, God? And he says, remember my affliction and my wanderings. My soul continually remembers them. But my soul is bowed down, but I turn my eyes upward. He says, but this I call to mind. And then I find hope. 
The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. This is good news, isn't it? The Lord is my portion, therefore I have hope in thee. This is the voice of Jeremiah. This is what was happening in Jerusalem while Daniel was trying to survive in Babylon. And so the story continues with Dan. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that I can look out and see devastating circumstances. I can look inward and I see pain and hopelessness. But when I look up, I find you. That you have been there all along. And Lord, even in those darkest places, even in those darkest moments, the eyes of the Lord see me. Your eyes see me and love me and hold me when I can't hold on to you. How great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in thee. Thank you for the story of faith that you are writing for each and every one of us. Thank you that the cross is enough. And in the cross, we find the love and the forgiveness and the strength that we need for everything we will face on this journey. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.